Good and welcome to Bible Quest. My name is Chase Byers, and today we are going to be talking about repentance. And uh, let's go ahead and, and uh, introduce the guys with us today. We've got Joe Works up in Elmira, New York. How are you doing today, Joe? Hey, Chase. Good to be with you today. Good to have you on. Uh, we missed you last week, but glad you're back. And of course, we've got Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. How are you doing today, Jeff? Hey, doing well here in Exton, Pennsylvania. Good. I thought about finding a way to mispronounce Exton, but I couldn't think of another way. Just to you can say X-Town or X-Ville or uh, something like that. Extenberg. How does Extenburg. that work? Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, it's good to have you guys on today. Today, we're going to be talking about repentance. Uh, if you have any questions or comments as we go through the podcast, feel free to either comment those on the Facebook feed. I've got that pulled up here on my left, or you can drop us a line if you're watching via the Zooms, uh, the Zoom app. So we're very thankful that you joined us today. Uh, well, let's go ahead and get started, guys. Um, let's talk about this word repentance, just for starters. Is that a word we hear very often outside of the Bible? You know, that's interesting. I, I had, you know, we don't really, just in popular culture, hear people talk about repenting a lot. I mean, even aside from a religious context, you don't hear people saying things like, I, I did this, or I thought about doing that, and then I repented. You just don't anymore. No, it, it's a Bible word, and uh, my friend Stephen, he calls it a churchy word. You know, it's really only used in the context of, of Scripture and in biblical discussion. But it did not used to be. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I can pull up examples. This is just a fresh thought as you ask that question, but I really think that if you went back in the 1800s and you were just reading literature— you could find people talk about repenting, not in some kind of liturgical sense, but just, uh, but you don't now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so I, I love bringing up this word. And in fact, uh, whenever I get a study with somebody who is new to the Bible, new to Jesus, or just wants to learn more about Jesus, I often start with them in the Gospel of Mark. So that's what I want to do to kind of introduce what repentance is, is to go to the Gospel. Look at Mark chapter 1. and. Uh, we'll ask Joe, do you mind to read just the first four verses of Mark 1? Sure. And so Mark 1, 1 through 4. Hey, yep. While he's doing that, while he's turning there, since you brought this up, watch this. Watch this. This is just, you Google the word repent, and you pull up a, a graph that shows its usage. Oh, wow. I didn't know that Google did that. That's really cool. It's used fairly frequently, you know, compared, and then it drops down. And by the time you get to the 1950s, it's just disappearing. A little pop up here. And the, but uh, that, that's kind of an interesting observation. All right, I'll quit sharing that. Okay, go ahead, Joe. <laughs> Mark 1, 1 through 4. Yep. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Okay, so we're given the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, gospel means good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. And then it gets into this prophecy that's a combination out of Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3. But what's interesting is the prophecy isn't exactly about Jesus. It's about John the Baptist. And he is going before Jesus, making the, way, the path straight for Jesus Christ. And verse 4 tells us how John the baptizer is doing that. What's he preaching, guys? 
Repentance. Yeah, he's preaching that you need to repent and have forgiveness of your sins by being baptized. And so from the very beginning of the gospel, there's that word repent again. I like to skip down to illustrate this point to verse 14. After Jesus himself is baptized, uh, Jeff, you got that? You want to read Mark 1, 14 and 15? I can get there very quickly. I turned over to Matthew's account of the same incident. But in Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, After John was delivered up, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe in the gospel. There you have it again. So not only do you have John the Baptist preaching this message to prepare the way for Jesus, once Jesus comes on the scene to start teaching and preaching, he's teaching the same thing. You need to repent and believe in the good news of the gospel or believe in the good news of me. The time is fulfilled. Now in this, in this, in Matthew's account of this same context, we get a little bit of an insight that I think surprises people sometimes in Matthew chapter three, where it says, John in verse one came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You come on down to verse 11 and the Pharisees and the Sadducees have come out to John's baptism and he rebukes them. And uh, he says, uh, well, this is actually not, it is verse eight, verse eight. He rebukes them and he says in verse eight, bring forth therefore fruit worthy of repentance. Well, the fruit is going to be the, the, the better conduct, the change in their lives. And it's interesting in this, con in this context that change is the produce, the fruit of repentance. Yes. Oftentimes people talk about repentance and, they, and they'll say, repenting is a, is a 180 degree change. So you're doing this and now you're doing the opposite. Actually, the change, that 180 degree change, if you want to put it that way, is the result of repentance. Yes. Which then leads us to that question, well, what is repentance really, which we're going to be talking about? Yeah, we'll talk more about what the word itself means in just a second, because I want to make another point out of Mark's gospel. Okay. If you go over to Mark chapter 6, it was in back in Mark 3 where Jesus chooses his 12 disciples. But in <laughs> chapter uh, 6, that's when Jesus sends out these 12 men. If you all look at chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus says, they, uh, it says that they, that's the apostles, went out and preached that men should repent. And this is why I like pointing this out. John the Baptist is preaching it. Jesus is preaching it. And then his 12 disciples are out preaching this repentance. Yeah. Guys, is it important? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like this is unavoidable. This is a teaching that goes back centuries. And even after Jesus dies, raises from the dead, and then ascends into heaven, over into the book of Acts, whenever all those Jews are gathered there on the day of Pentecost, and these Jews realize that they've killed their, their only chance, they've killed the Jesus, the Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and they say, brethren, what shall we do? What does Peter say in verse 38? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's answer the question. What does that word even mean? How, what's the definition? Well, a lot of people think it means be sorry, right? Yeah, and I've actually had people answer me that. Well, what does it mean to repent? And because it's not a word we use a lot, normally we think it just means to be really, really sorry about it. And guys, is that somewhat true? Well, it's hard to repent if you're not sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, it's a part of it, but what else is there to it? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, Paul here 
talks about uh, his his purpose in writing the first letter to the Corinthians, where he had really he had scolded them pretty sternly, and he says in verse eight of Second Corinthians seven, I though I made you sorry with my epistle, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that epistle made you sorry, but for a season. I now rejoice not that you were made sorry. Being sorrowful wasn't the goal in and of itself, but that you were made sorry unto repentance. So the sorrow led to the repentance, but it doesn't always do that. He says, for you were made sorry after a godly sort that you might suffer loss by us in nothing. There's another kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. For godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, a repentance which brings no regret, but the sorrow of the world works death. So sorrow and repentance aren't the same thing. You can be sorrowful and yet not repent, and we have some examples of that, don't we? Well, I was thinking about the contrast between uh, Judas and and Peter. Uh, Judas was certainly very sorrowful for what he had done. Uh, It describes him as, as being sorrowful for that. Um, and in some translations, it even says he repented, although it's a different word than the word we're talking about where it says repent. But yeah, he was sorrowful, but it, he, didn't, he didn't have that, what, what repentance is really all about. The, I think of the rich young ruler, uh, when Jesus told him to sell everything he had and go and give it to the poor and come follow Jesus, the, the rich young ruler went away with what attitude, what demeanor? He was very sorrowful. Yeah, and this is Matthew, the 19th chapter, verse 22, when the young man heard the saying, he went away sorrowful, but did he repent? No, no he did not. That he did. It, maybe even thinking about the text in Acts 2, correct me if you all see this differently, uh, you know, the text says that they were pierced in their hearts and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Uh-huh. And Peter says for them to repent. Uh, the, the idea that they were pricked in their hearts or pierced in their hearts uh, cut to the heart, that would show that they're sorrowful. Right. Uh, but the, but and Peter points out that they still need to do something else that would qualify as repentance. So that that's interesting then. All right. So then if, if, if being sorrowful in and of itself is not repentance, then what is repentance? Well, I, I really like one of the specific definitions I've been given. And I think this is actually straight out of Thayer's, the Greek word. And that's to change one's purpose or intent or mind you're completely altering the way you used to see things. And in, in a result of that, like what Jeff pointed out to us in Matthew 3, 8, we are going to bear fruit worthy of that repentance. Since we've changed our mind about everything, then everything we used to do needs to be corrected. We got to find ways to right those wrongs. Yeah. And so uh, that's really what the podcast is going to be about today. Yeah, so, so the word, the noun repentance, metanoia in Greek, uh, is made of two parts after and mind. And it's, it's a reference to a new state of mind when there's been a change of mind or a change of heart, as you just talked about, or the verb metanoeo, uh, which is to have a, an after mind, a change of mind. And so uh, we use meta in the sense of a change. In, in, in a, Metamorphosis, a transformation. Yeah, sure. And so there's, so there's this idea of being sorrowful, but that's not enough. People can be very sorrowful uh, about their actions and what the pain they've caused others and that kind of thing. And yet they keep going on just doing the same old, same old. They've not had a change of heart that says, I'm going to do differently. Yeah. 
I mean, and a classic example I love using is, you know, if I punch Joe in the face next time I see him Mm -hmm. and uh, I look at him and I say, hey, I'm really sorry about that. Please forgive me. (laughs) And Joe, he knows what the Bible's teaching is and he he forgives me. Turn the other cheek. I come around uh, the next time I come around, I punch him in the face again for no apparent reason. And I say, I'm really, really sorry. It's okay, And he forgives me. Then I do it again. And again, and again, you know, Joe has his responsibility in forgiving me. But there is also a point in which he's going to look at me and say, you're not sorry because you continue to do this over and over and over again. Well, at least you're not repenting. Yeah, yeah. You, you might be sorrowful, but you have a weird way of showing it because <laughs> yeah. uh, you keep doing it. And I, I'm not I'm also repenting. I'm also counting for that 491st time, by the yeah, way. Well, <laughs> You get that 491st time and you're in trouble. And then, uh, yeah. So anyways, I think that's a a helpful way to look at what repentance really is. So guys, this is what I want for the podcast today. I want us to go around and look at the Bible. This is, of course, the Bible Quest um, podcast. And we're on a quest to look for pictures of repentance. Look at examples of people or Bible characters and stories uh, where they truly repented. And sometimes what's cool is that word repent might not even be used in context of what they're doing. But when you look at it, you're like, wow, these are people who are really bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So guys, where does your mind go uh, so on this quest? I, I have one that's sort of a contrast to what Jeff had mentioned earlier. We talked about the rich young ruler who was sorrowful, but the text does not indicate him making any change. In fact, it, it leaves us with him walking away. Um, but in contrast to that, you have another rich individual in Zacchaeus, who, uh, when the Lord calls him uh, in Luke 19, and uh, say, uh, drop down to um, verse 7, uh, well, uh, verse, uh, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Uh, that certainly seems to be the kind of attitude that the Lord is wanting in individuals, uh, changes that need to take place. If I've done something wrong, I'm going to make restoration of that. Um, it seems to be the change of mind that, that we're describing. As you said, even though the word isn't specifically used there in the text, I don't think. Yeah, no, but he understood that his walking with Jesus was going to cost him something. It was going to require him to right the wrongs that he had been participating in. So, yeah, I absolutely think Zacchaeus is a wonderful example of somebody who understood what repentance was and then went out and bore fruit worthy of it. I think we see a lot of examples. We see multiple examples or a couple of big prominent examples, at least in the life of David. There is the occasion when he takes a census an ill-advised census in Second uh, Samuel, the 24th chapter. And it's interesting in this case, Joab, who seems to be somewhat secular-minded secular individual, sees the folly in this. It, it appears that David is putting his trust in the numbers of his army, and he wants to know how many, how, how big is my army? And that's, that's a misguided part. If you just look at it, you just look at what he did. What is it so sinful or evil about counting how many people you have in your army? The problem was his heart. And um, then verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 24 says, Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. 
So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And it's interesting as the text goes on, the prophet of God uh, gives him a choice of, of you know, what, what consequences he might face. And David says in verse 14, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And, this, and the story goes on. What, what we see here, though, is a change of heart. Uh, he had one mind where he was trusting in his, his army, the hands of men, really. And then he has a change of heart, and he just wants to, to um, give himself over to the hands of God. Just don't let me fall into the hands of men. He's not gonna try. He realizes it's all about God. Uh, yes, uh, very good. Um, Dan Richardson just commented, he brought up a really good one about the prodigal son. He came to himself. He changed his mind. Uh, and he, in reaction to that, what did he go and do, guys? There was an action. He turned, he turned and went back to his father and said, just let me be a servant. Just let me be one of the slaves in your house. Yes. And of course, we love that story because the father receives him back and forgives him. And Jesus is really trying to teach us a lesson about the older brother who doesn't have the same response. But it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Which illustrates something. He, that, that young brother who had wasted the inheritance that he got, he could have sat there in that pig, pig pen uh, just, just bemoaning the fact, oh, I did something so stupid. Here I am sitting here in this pig pen, but with no resolve to do differently. But because there was a change of heart or repentance, he actually did differently and went back to his father with a very humble attitude. And I think this gets to one of the points you want to bring out, Chase, is that if, if there is no change in my conduct, uh, that, that leads us to the question, did I really have a change of heart? And so when we are engaged in some kind of sinful activity, we can deceive ourselves and say, well, I've, I've repented. But if I'm still continuing in that sin, I need to look at my heart. Am I deceiving myself? Did I really have a change of heart? My actions need to change. I need to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. The Lord requires it. Yes. Amen. So another good example, I think, um, and the text itself, I don't see using that word, uh, but we'll get to it in just a second, maybe. Uh, in the story of Jonah, the city of Nineveh, <laughs> uh, have a, just a pretty good example of, of that taking place. Yeah, that's kind of interesting because I'm not sure we see Jonah actually repenting. He changes his action. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So that, I think that's just one of the many contrasts that you have with Jonah. And, you know, each, each person he comes in contact with, they act more godly than he does, right? The, the sailors uh, or that way, the people in Nineveh that way. Um, but then uh, after Jonah preaches to them in Jonah 3, 5, so the people of Nineveh proclaimed, uh, believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them to the least, the word came to the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 10, then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. 
And God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And then you have Jesus' affirmation in Matthew 12. Uh, Jesus said that the city of Nineveh repented. Um, and so the, the word is used in the New Testament in reference to this text. Um, but you have these, these fruits worthy of repentance. And what it says that God saw that they had turned from their evil ways. So they had that new mind or that, that changed mind. And we talked about the definition. Can you remember off the top of your head where Jesus talks about that? It's in Matthew's account, I think. Matthew 12, 41, I believe it is. somewhere. Matthew right. 12, 41. Okay. Yeah, because they, they, they repented at the preaching of John. What's really funny is every time I hear the story in my head, but I'm not actually looking at the text, the message in my head that Jonah is preaching them is, repent, or in 40 days you'll be overthrown. But that's, that's not what the text says. No, the text no. says Jonah was going around the city uh, saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Right. <laughs> he, has, he has no, is, it records nothing for us about him telling them to repent. But his right. message is, you're going to be overthrown in 40 days. But they're smart about it and realize that they need to turn. And I've never thought about that connection between whenever we're turning from our wicked ways, God is turning to us. And that's a really cool idea. As you're turning, God's turning to meet you. And that's a, that's a blessing. Yeah. I already mentioned the prodigal son, you know, the father watching down the road. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. So uh, there's another really cool one I like to look at. It's in Acts chapter 19. This is, of course, when Paul is in Ephesus. We just got done in, in, in the context of this talking about the seven sons of Sceva. And uh, there were some of these people who were practicing magic. And in verse 18, uh, after a couple of miracles, in Acts 19, 18, many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Yeah. I love this story so much. Y'all see the word repent anywhere around there? No, but you see, you see it. Yeah, that's right. That's what you're able to see. Here are these people who were in sin. They had been practicing magic and they take these books that they used to, and these books were stumbling blocks to them and they burn them. Now I'll ask, do you think it was necessary for them to burn the books? I can easily see somebody saying, well, I'm not going to do this magic stuff anymore, but this book is worth a lot of money. I'm at least going to get my money out of it. I'm going to go sell it to the used bookstore or something. I think it, it would be easy to justify doing that, but that's not what they do. They, they don't want these books to be used as stumbling blocks for other people. So they burn them all. That's a real change of heart that resulted in a real change of action. And a common silver coin, a drachma, was about a day's wage. I mean, I think one of the calculations I looked at was something like three or four million dollars worth of books. And of course, books weren't as cheap as they are now because they were handwritten and uh, produced that way. But man, think about the message that this is sending to those around. And isn't that what verse 20 gives us some insight into? The word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And I love that. These people. These Ephesians who had burned their books, they sent a message out to the world by doing that. And they said, we have changed, and we're not going to do this anymore. 
So we have a phrase that we often use in English language, or at least boomers do, um, uh, of, you know, burning your bridges. Yeah. Uh, you know. Would you say burning your britches? No. Bridges. <laughs> oh, bridges. Okay, bridges. got it. Yes. yes. Um, although, yeah, well, anyway. Um, so, you know, the idea of people will say, like, if you're quitting a job, you know, make sure you don't say something bad to the boss as you're leaving because you don't want to burn your bridges. You might need to go back to that. But in a, in a spiritual way, I've heard it applied that we do need to burn our bridges. Uh, you know, we need to get rid of the things behind us. Might be a, a, a better illustration to say burning our books um, from, from this text. Uh, repentance involves destroying that which uh, has been leading us away from God. Uh, cutting off your hand, plucking out your eye. Cast and then casting it far from you. Right. I always thought that was a, a really powerful illustration that Jesus used uh, because if you cut off your hand, it's useless right then. But he, he gives a suggestion then or the, or the instruction then, you know, use your other hand and throw that hand far away. It's because if we think about that, that hand is really what you're doing, the sin that you're doing, it's not enough just to stop it. You need to get it far away from you. And that's what these people are doing with their books. Yeah. That's real repentance. They are not going to go back to this. I uh, think about Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in, regards, uh, in regard to its lust. These guys, they have no more provision for it. They've burned it. They've burnt that bridge mm-hmm. and they, by burning these books. And they're not going to be able to go back to it anyways because the books have been burned. And so uh, it's uh, clearly a picture of repentance. One of the things that's interesting is you, is you bring up examples uh, such as this one where people demonstrate their repentance in, a, in you could say, a dramatic way uh, in the changes in their lives. Um, maybe that, that helps to uh, call attention to the difference between repentance and confession. Have you ever run into people who thought repentance and, and confession were same, the same thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, you could have somebody who confesses his sin and say, oh, he repented. And yet there is no change of heart and there is certainly no change of action. There's no difference in what he goes on doing. But we say, well, he repented. No, all he did was confess. All he did was admit what he's doing wrong, but he hasn't repented. Confession and repentance are not the same thing. Yeah, and uh, I, I even think about Nehemiah when he comes along uh, to help rebuild the wall in that prayer in Nehemiah 1. He confesses the sins of himself and those of his father's house, but then he goes on to repent. I mean, the people, they change their mind about things, and they're bearing fruit and worthy of repentance by building the wall and rededicating themselves to the Lord. And so, yeah, that's a very good point, Jeff. But coming back to this idea in Acts 19, uh, I just want to ask those who are watching and ask ourselves, can the world see us? actively repenting when there's something to be repented of. Yes, the repenting is the change of mind, but can the world see the fruit of that? There's a lot of benefit in that. Verse 20 shows and tells us that because of what these people were doing, the word of the Lord prevailed and it was growing mightily. Uh, so even in something small, when somebody becomes a Christian, they might decide, I'm not going to go to the bars anymore. I'm not going to go to the bars with the guys after work. Well, the next time they invite you, 
what are you going to say? Oh, I'm just tired, so I'm not going to go. Or are you going to say, I've repented. I'm not doing that anymore. I've changed my mind about it, and I'm not going. That's, that's fruit worthy of repentance, and there's benefit in that. Saul is an example of this. He had been persecuting the Christians, the believers. He had been persecuting the believing Jews. And then he sees the Lord, and he is baptized, and he goes away. And now he's preaching the Lord. And so Acts chapter 9 and verse uh, 20 says, And straightway in the synagogues he proclaimed Jesus, that he is the Son of God. So there's a, a change of heart that's taken place that has resulted in a very dramatic change in action. And verse 21 says, all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that in Jerusalem made havoc of them that called on, his, on this name? And he had come here for this intent that he might bring them bound before the chief priests. So they're amazed at the change that they see. And it serves as a testimony to God. And so we need to continue that in our lives as well. Yeah, very, Saul is an excellent one to bring into that. And it, the word kind of popped out to me as well, just in the chapter before that, in Acts 8, whenever Simon the sorcerer, after he's become a Christian, after he's been baptized, he tries to buy the ability to have spiritual gifts. And what does Peter say to him? Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, what would repentance look like for Simon the sorcerer? <clears throat> Quit thinking that way. You're, you're not, there's really not a whole lot of fruit for him to bear and worthy of that repentance other than quit thinking that way. Quit thinking that you can buy this and quit wanting to buy that to be seen by men. Uh, it's going to be a change in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think maybe one of this, the, the fruits of repentance would be his humility. You know, it, it, pride is a part of the issue. He was claiming to be somebody great. Now he's wanting to buy this power, I assume, for that same purpose. Uh, So people will think of him as being great sign of repentance will be him glorifying God and, uh, and being a humble person, not seeking to be in the forefront to to be seen and so forth. Well, let me, let me summarize all the examples we've brought up so far and we've got a few more to go. Repentance is going to cost us something. Now for a couple of the examples we gave, like in Zacchaeus's case and in these Ephesians case, It cost them financially. They gave up a lot of money in order to bear this fruit worthy of repentance. And that's the case. Sometimes when we turn our lives over to Christ or we're trying to make a correction in our life, and so we got to bear that fruit, it might cost us some money. might be getting rid of something that we invested a lot of money into, or it might be having to pay to, to remove certain things out of our lives, so forth and so on. Um, I even think about the guy who, you know, who's got the stack of pornography. Um, now I realize that a lot of it's digital now, but I mean, the guy who's got a stack of magazines, videos, whatever, does he need to sell that? No, he needs to destroy that. And no matter how much money he might have invested in that, it's costing him something. He needs to get rid of it. So there might be a financial cost, but in some of these examples, there was a spiritual cost for Simon, the sorcerer or the rich young ruler. It was going to take humility. That's what that was going to cost them. They're giving away their will, and they're submitting to God's. And so there's a cost with repentance. So this whole idea of, of manifestation of repentance, you know, that, that a person changes, and then those changes are, are reflected in their actions. Um, I, I think about Ephesians 4 in that regard, um, where, you know, 
example, verse 25, put away lying, each one speak truth. Or verse 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may give uh, something to him who has need. So instead of being a taker, repentance then would require you to become a giver. Uh, It's not enough just to stop stealing. You need to go to the other extreme there and seek to work so that you could provide for others. Uh, Verse 29, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but edification. Uh, You know, I think that if we want to have a, a gut check on repentance, have I repented? Where does that change in my life? How, how is that reflected? That reminds me of something John the Baptist will say to the crowds that asked him, what shall we do? Uh, and John the Baptist said, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors say, what shall we do? And he said to them, uh, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. The soldiers ask him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, but be content with your wages. Uh, so you're going to stop doing this, and then this is what you're going to do on the other end of it. Now, let me throw out a, a question here. Is it possible in some instances that I have done something wrong and I can repent of it, but I cannot possibly undo what I've done. So Zacchaeus that we mentioned earlier, you know, he, he essentially was talking about righting wrongs that he had done, repaying fourfold, that kind of thing. Um, But if repentance is a change of heart, is it possible in some instances that I could have done something wrong that I cannot undo and yet I can repent? I think one of the big ones that is staring us in the face is a form of adultery. Um, the, the actual act of committing fornication or excuse me, cheating on your spouse, that can't be undone. That is something you did and you can quit doing it, but it doesn't undo the fact that you actually fell into that horrible, nasty sin. I can't, I can't change my actions going forward, but I can't un- undo the fact that I've done this. This is one of the great things about the grace of God. I can't undo the sin that I've committed, but in Jesus Christ, I can be forgiven. But another example would be murder. Yeah. If you kill somebody, you can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I repent. Let me bring your child back from the dead that I killed or, or whoever it was. You can't undo it, but you can have a change of heart other than the heart that you had in the moment of anger or whatever you were the circumstances when you killed this person. The Apostle Saul, uh, Apostle Paul, uh, pretty good illustration of that. Uh, he could not undo what he had done in regard to Stephen, uh, but you see the changed life from there on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Excellent point. To, to, to go back now, though, to emphasize that wherever we can change something, uh, that, that's got to be a fruit of repentance. We talked yesterday on the Tuesday webcast, we talked about uh, Hebrews, and in Hebrews chapter 6, where the writer talks about uh, not laying again a foundation of various things, he's telling the people, you know, move on from what you knew uh, even before you became Christians. He calls these things in the American standard the first principles of Christ. 
He's writing to Hebrews, Jewish believers who weren't always believers, but they had been perhaps faithful, devout Jewish servants of God. And as such, they had had a foundation. Uh, they understood various things. If you look at the things mentioned in Hebrews, the sixth chapter, each of the things mentioned there are things that were understood by Old Testament saints, whether it be um, repentance from dead works or faith toward God or the teaching of washings or the laying on of hands or resurrection from the dead or eternal judgment. And he's, he's urging them to move on from those things, but focusing upon the word repentance there. Uh, two, two observations. One, that's so fundamental. Repentance is not like a second level or third level. It's, it's not the meat of the word. Repentance is something you got to get down from the get-go. Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's something that even Jewish disciples before they were Christians had in the law. You can turn back to Psalm 7, uh, and we see David saying in the seventh Psalm, there are two passages that I want to go to. And Psalm 7 is uh, one where it says in verse 12, if a man does not repent, he, God, will sharpen his sword. And, and then an illustration of repentance, where we don't see the word, but Isaiah, the first chapter, and these passages we talked about yesterday just a bit. But Isaiah, the first chapter, here's the Lord really issuing a call to repentance. Wash yourselves, this is verse 16 of Isaiah 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Mm -hmm. It's a call to repentance, and it's a call to repentance that demands new conduct, good conduct, a change in conduct. And so, by all means, uh, amen. Is it also worth uh, noting that a change of conduct is not necessarily a sign of true repentance. Yes. Um, you know, you're, you're driving down the highway uh, 10 miles over the speed limit and you look ahead and uh, you see a police car pulled off to the side. You suspect that he's got a radar gun, immediately begin to slow down, start, you know, obeying the, the speed limit. Uh, I think that's probably a pretty good illustration of the way some people conduct their lives. I don't want to get caught or I got caught and I don't want to suffer as a result. So I make a change, but as soon as I get a chance, I'm going to go back to it or I don't really, I'm not really bothered by what I was doing. Yeah. Jeremiah three, when the uh, Judah, uh, sees her sister Israel having gone into captivity at the hand of the Assyrians. And there was a superficial change. So Jeremiah chapter three and verse seven, I thought after she had done all these things, she will return to me. Uh, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her rid of divorce, yet her treacherous sister did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. However, if you look at the historical account of this, in, uh, in the days of Josiah, which would have been about this time, 
it talks about some changes that the people made. And Josiah made the people uh, obey God's word. But then it's going to say here in Jeremiah chapter 3, um, and I just turned away from it, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10, Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. So there was a change, but there wasn't really a change of heart. Well, and I think that can lead us into, as we close down here, we got about five minutes, talking about baptism without repentance. Yeah. If somebody is baptized, like Peter said in Acts 2.38, baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, and there is no repentance, what have they done? They got wet. Yeah. They just took a bath, a quick one, but they just took a bath. Jesus talks about being born of water and the Spirit. Well, they weren't born of the Spirit. So it really wasn't the new birth or the birth from above that Jesus describes in John 3. Right. And so I think sometimes uh, for those who are listening who, who also agree that the Scriptures teach that one should be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, I think sometimes we, we preach that to a degree where we don't talk about repentance enough. And baptism is necessary. We need to preach that aggressively because it's such a concept that's not taught. I would say repentance is right up there with it. There are a lot of things that, that the secular world, or excuse me, the evangelical world won't say about repentance that need to be said. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, I think is a good picture of this. Paul, we referenced this last week, is looking to the Corinthians and saying, you know, you all used to be all of these awful, horrible things, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You repented of these things. And we need to preach that message just as much as we preach about baptism. Thoughts or comments there, guys? So uh, I don't know if, if you want to jump into this, if we have enough time, but what about the person that's just really messed up? I mean, it, it, I, there's, there's got to be other people that feel like I did at one point and that, man, I've just made such a mess of my life it's too late. How could I, how could God possibly forgive me? Um, can I, can I repent if I've really just destroyed my life in, in so many ways, or maybe even hurt other people profoundly? That's your only hope is to repent, to have a change of heart and put your trust in the Lord, his sacrifice being united with his death by being baptized into his death so that his death atones for your sins. Cause you cannot, you know, none of us can, undo the wrongs we've done. But in a case like that, it's so obvious to the individual. I cannot, I can't fix everything I've done wrong. No, you can't. The only thing you can do is seek the Lord's grace. Yeah. I, I think about somebody like Paul, like what we talked about yesterday in his letter to Timothy, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul was overwhelmed by how much grace God had to show him. And that's what he chose to focus on. And that's what motivated him to continue to repent and make the changes that he could. If he was too focused on himself and everything that he had done, he's not going to get anywhere. But because he was focused on the grace of God, that motivated him to make the changes he needed. Think about two of the, perhaps two of the worst kings in Israel, uh, you have Ahab and Manasseh. 
Um, both of them just did horrendous things personally and on a national level. And yet the text talks about how uh, each of them, uh, I don't know that it uses the exact word of repentance, but you see that concept uh, that, that <clears throat> what we just talked about um, in, in both of their lives of repenting at the teaching of the Lord eventually and the Lord uh, accepting that, uh, the Lord welcoming them in 1 Kings 21 and then uh, what Second Chronicles 33. Uh, if I think about if, if Ahab and Manasseh can, can come back to the Lord in repentance and be received by the Lord, then uh, that gives me great hope. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we are out of time. Uh, we got about 30 seconds left, so I'll just let everybody know if you have anything that you want uh, to send us in for questions or anything like that, feel free to send that to us. As we wrap up as well, we're going to bring Drew DeGrotto on. He is in the background normally during this podcast, and he's going to give a couple of technical uh, information to those who might want to subscribe and listen a different way. So we'll bring Drew on now. Actually, I think, I think we decided we're going to do that next week after we have time to get some things set in place. Oh, okay. Well then I, I, you can blame Joe for my outburst there because he told me to bring Drew on. So, <laughs> all right. Well, very good. Well, thank you guys for the discussion today and Lord willing, we'll see everyone next Wednesday. Bye-bye.